So this is the Queerly Faithful and Faithfully Queer seminar. We have David Bromont come share his amazing experience with us, and I will let him just jump in. <laughs> Don't know about amazing experience, at times painful experience, and um, <laughs> other times grateful to still be here. Um, is everyone comfortable with this being recorded? You okay Sorry, with it? I should have said... Um, if you do want to say, we're not going to be publishing this far and wide. If you do want to say something that's personal um, and you don't want it to be kept on the recording, just start with that and we will edit it out. So, um, welcome everyone. Uh, what we're going to be thinking about in this workshop is um, the plural identities that make us who we are and how to live well in the borderlands between those identities. And the, the background of this is my um, personal experience um, from 1986 until 2003 of trying to straddle uncomfortably the border between the gay and lesbian community and my faith community, um, particularly as an ordained minister. Um, Within the church, I was challenged to justify my sexual identity. But equally, within the gay and lesbian community, I was often confronted and challenged to defend my faith and my choice to continue participating in an oppressive institution. So I found myself living in a borderlands. And the organisers of the conference invited me to uh, share some of my experience with you. And I imagine many of you share this of living um, across boundaries and borders. And of course, uh, this experience is not unique to sexual identity and religious faith. Um, if you come, for example, from a refugee or migrant background, then you may feel not Kiwi enough in some social contexts and way too kiwified within your own national or ethnic community. Um, or you know, if, like me, you uh, grew up in a working class background and then you've experienced social mobility through education, uh, you can end up feeling that you don't really fit in either with working class people or with the professional class you're working among. So this experience of uh, living in the borders, uh, in the borderlands, is pretty common. It's a human experience. So let's begin by thinking about the identities that make you who you are. And what I'd like you to do is uh, just form little groups of three or four and introduce yourself to the people in your group with your name and then tell them something interesting about you that they might not guess just by looking at you. <laughs> Who clusters them as personal, social and human, and I found this really helpful. My, my personal identity is my sense of self as an embodied individual. It's what marks me out as a self and other people as not self, and it's also what lets me think about the fact that as a person, I'm not the same person I was 10 years ago, 
or 20 years ago, or 30 years ago, or 40 years ago, or 50 years ago, or 60 years ago, in my case. But I'm the same self. It, it's a sense of being an enduring self over the passing of time. Our social identities are constituted by our relationships with various others and by our interests and activities. So, um, for example, I'm the son to my now 92-year-old mother. Uh, I am uh, a father. I'm a brother. I'm a grandfather. I'm an uncle. Um, I am a gay man who's been with the same bloke for over 22 years now. Um, I'm a recovering Christian. Um, I'm, uh, professionally, I've, I've worked for 20 years in public policy and in uh, writing and teaching political theory. That's an important part of my identity now. Um, uh, I've retired and, and I'm an amateur musician and artist and that's becoming more important to me because I don't have to go to work anymore. Um, I identify as a South Islander, a uh, New Zealander, uh, a tramper and so on. Now these are all my social identities and there's lots of them. And then thirdly, we have a human identity as a member of a distinct species. And that has implications for how we treat one another as human persons equal in dignity and rights. But it's our social identities that cause us the most grief. They bring such promise and pain. They allow us to make connections and they enrich our lives, but they also tend to cluster us into tribes of us and them. Um, and that generates conflict. So the borderlands between our social identities become places not only of connection but also of challenge and conflict and contestation. So what I want to invite you to do now is just think for yourself some personal reflection about times when you felt you were straddling the border between two or more social identities. And if you've got a bit of paper or just hold it in your head, jot down three words that describe that experience for you. Of being caught between almost two worlds, two identities, things that are important to you. And then after you've had a chance to think about that for yourself, uh, I invite you to share it in your small group. So take, yeah, take a couple of minutes first just for some personal reflection. It can be enough just to recognise and accept that we live in the borderlands. Um, I had to go to a terrible Methodist conference in 1996. <laughs> oh, no. And I'm really grateful to a, uh, a colleague who went to the Council of Conference and said, look, you've got to realise that David isn't only accountable to the church. He's also accountable to the gay and lesbian community. 
and the decisions you make today uh, can put him in a very difficult position on both sides. And, and just having him name that uh, was quite uh, eye-opening even for me, uh, just realising, yes, I belong in two worlds. Um, and that's why I never feel completely home in either one. Um, I'm living in the borderlands. Um, if I'm allowed to quote the Bible at a queer Christian conference, um, <laughs> there is a text in the first letter of Peter, chapter 3, that has always challenged me. Always be ready to make your defence to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Um, and that's what I struggle with. Um, the hardest years for me were between 1990 and 2003 when I actually left the church. Um, I simply didn't have the maturity to cope with it then. Um, and to consistently make a defence with gentleness and respect. Uh, but at the end of my working life, and with the benefit of hindsight, I want to share with you two, two mindsets, way of thinking about and framing uh, the problem of living well in the borderlands. And the first mindset is that toleration is enough. Um, in my work in public policy, um, I, I did a lot of population analysis and realising how super diverse New Zealand's society has become. And we live in a society where people want and value different things. That's just the way it is. And the view that I've come to, and I'll explain why in a moment, is that it's unrealistic for me to expect other people to like, agree with, approve of, or affirm my ideas, beliefs, attitudes, values, and way of life. Excuse me, David, can I get you to just repeat that again? Yep. Um, it's unrealistic for me to expect other people to like, uh, agree with, approve of, or affirm my ideas, beliefs, attitudes, values, uh, and way of life. So long as they do not resort to violence to resolve their disagreements with me, or incite other people to violence or acts of hostility and discrimination, I've come to the conclusion that it's okay for them not to like me and even to hate me. I have a right to be protected from violence under law, but I don't have a right to be liked. I don't have a right to be agreed with. I don't have a right to be approved of or affirmed. It's enough if they tolerate me. Now. I want to explain how I got to this position because it took me a long, long time. The first 
reason I came to this view was reflecting on our own Christian history. And the second reason is because of some feminist political theory. So first, the, the bit of Christian history that I've thought about a lot is the European wars of religion that raged for over 100 years between 1522 and when the Peace of Westphalia was signed in Münster and Osnabrück in Germany in 1648. And when I was um, living in uh, North Rhine-Westphalia a couple of years ago on a research fellowship, I made a day trip to the city of Münster. I wanted to see where the Peace of Westphalia was signed. And um, the first thing I saw when I arrived in the city, and it, it was a freezing winter's day, but sunny blue sky, but the snow was a foot deep, and it was, the temperature never got above zero. <laughs> but I walked past the cathedral, and on the spire of that cathedral, they still have the iron cages where they suppressed the Anabaptist uh, rebellion they dismembered the bodies and they put them in these iron cages up on the spire for the crows to eat the remains. And I was originally ordained in the Baptist church, so I had a kind of feeling of personal connection to this. The, the horror of it. And then seeing where the peace of uh, Westphalia was signed. The, the wars of religion had killed an estimated 10 million people. Um, the worst of it was during the Thirty Years' War from 1618 to 1648. Germany lost a third of its population. And in some towns and villages, two-thirds of the population was killed. Now, the fighting stopped when people acknowledged their differences, accepted that because of their differences, conflict is inevitable, and when they committed to manage their conflict politically and institutionally under the rule of law and not by resorting to violence, and perhaps most important of all, they agreed to tolerate what they disliked and even hated in one another. Now, toleration doesn't sound like much, but when you compare it to the alternative, it's a remarkable achievement and it's enough now this is something I've changed my mind on on the course of my life when I was in the church I used to argue that we should be affirmed not merely tolerated I've changed my mind and I've come to the view that toleration is enough and the second reason for my arriving at that conclusion is because of the work of some feminist political theorists Iris Marion Young and Chantal Mouffe, um, they talk about a politics that is agonistic rather than antagonistic. Mm. And the idea of agonism goes back to athletic contests in ancient Greece. It means engaging with one another as opponents, but not as enemies. And Iris Young suggests um, that we aim to coexist in what she calls a community of strangers. We don't all have to like each other. 
We don't have to live in each other's pockets. We don't have to be friends. Just like in a big city, most of us will continue to be strangers to one another, but we can share a common life as citizens and fellow humans and live together without violence. Living in a community of strangers. So that's the first mindset that I offer you today. We can be a community of strangers and toleration is enough. And in fact, when I think back, the main strategy um, that I've used over the years when I find myself in the borderlands is to try and build connections with my opponents based not on persuading them to my point of view, but on the identities we share um, and our common human identity. So within the church, there were people who I could not ever reasonably expect to affirm my sexual identity. But I was often able to make connections based on music or art or food uh, and even knitting. Um, and with many, if not all, that did make possible at least a mutual toleration. And that, I'm suggesting, is enough. So now I want you to go into some discussion in your small groups. And the first question I have for you to discuss is within the gay, lesbian, alphabet, soup, queer community, whatever you call it, um, is your Christian faith and way of life tolerated or affirmed? Talk about your experience within the queer community. Between identities. The first one was actually toleration is enough. And the second one is let's call in instead of calling out. Um, the first Christian communities really struggled with unity and diversity and how to disagree agreeably. Um, arguments about circumcision and Jewish dietary laws uh, were particularly fierce, and you can see it in Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 2. It, the arguments got in the way even of people doing something as human as sharing food together. And sadly, after the um, conversion of the Emperor Constantine in 312, the subsequent history of Christianity shows churches opting for unholy alliances with the state to censor, suppress and persecute uh, disagreement and dissent. Um, when I was living in Germany, I visited a friend in Dusseldorf, you know, beside the Rhine, and we caught a tram north to the historic district of Kaiserswerth, very old part of the city. 
and um, we got to see the training hospital where Florence Nightingale trained in 1850. Mm. And then we took a walk to have a look around the uh, St. Sweetbertus Basilica that was built from you know, the beginning of the 11th century. And as we wandered around the church, I saw on uh, the east wall that um, a sculptural relief, a bronze relief, had been installed in 1991 to commemorate the 400th anniversary of the birth of one Friedrich Schwab in Kaiserswerth in 1591. Now, I'd never heard of Friedrich Schwab, and you probably haven't either. Um, he was a German Jesuit who saw firsthand the cruelty, injustice and pointlessness of persecuting, torturing um, women accused during the witch trials of the early 17th century. And the sculpture shows him supporting an unconscious woman while holding a copy of uh, the book that he wrote in 1631 opposing the persecution and torture of witches. Now, I've, I've printed off just three copies, pass it round and just have a look at this memorial sculpture uh, about Friedrich Bay. Because um, that image has stayed with me as a reminder that attempts to shun cancel, uh, drive out or exterminate people and ideas that we don't like uh, never end well and cause a great deal of human misery, particularly uh, when they leverage the coercive powers of the state. So here's an idea. Um, perhaps being queerly faithful includes helping faith communities become more at ease with uh, difference, criticism, mm -hmm. argument, and disagreement. Uh, reminding the church that nothing good has ever come from its long and bloody history of um, heresy trials, crusades, censorship, inquisitions, witch trials, and persecution of dissenters and reformers. Mm. Um, and accepting that toleration is enough. <coughs> and then perhaps being faithfully queer means contributing our understanding of Christian history to help queer communities turn aside from a woke authoritarianism that can be just as intolerant of difference and disagreement as biblical fundamentalism. Um, reminding the queer community especially that anyone who wants to leverage the coercive powers of the state to control what people think and say should be careful what they wish for. I am concerned at the increasing polarisation of New Zealand society and the ways disagreement and debate uh, shut down by name-calling mm. and a too-ready labelling of people as racist, misogynist, 
homophobic or transphobic. There's a, um, a, a woman, a professor who teaches at Smith College in the US, uh, Loretta Ross, and she has been with her students and in some of her publications challenging the nastiness of cancel culture and calling out with an alternative strategy, calling in. And uh, here's how she describes it. Calling in is like calling out, but done privately and with respect. That may mean simply sending someone a private message or even ringing them on the telephone, God forbid, uh, to discuss the matter, or simply taking a breath before commenting screenshotting or demanding one do better without explaining how. Calling out assumes the worst. Calling in involves compassion, conversation and context. It doesn't mean a person should ignore harm, slight or damage, but nor should she, he or they exaggerate it. When we engage in calling in, the question to ask is, um, what can I learn from this, rather than how can I get rid of this? Debating ideas instead of trying to delete them or to cancel people. Recovering civility as the art of disagreeing agreeably. Now, what Loretta Ross means by calling in sounds very much to me like the gentleness and respect the first letter of Peter asks us to demonstrate when reasoning and arguing agonistically, not antagonistically, with our opponents. So another question for your discussion in your small groups. What strategies work for you to help manage your emotions when um, arguments, when people disagree with you and the argument gets heated? How do you handle it? Throw this open. Uh, for some general questions, comments and reflections. Uh, there may be things you want to ask me, there may be reactions to what we've been talking about in the workshop. What's on your mind? Uh, what would you like to talk about? So we'll start down here. Um, I just, I was wondering, because we, we were talking about how, what hard work it is to kind of disciplinely respond to someone with that kind of like essentially grace, right, for, for whatever it is, whatever is invested in them, in the beliefs that they have, because people don't hold beliefs for no reason. Um, but I was just also reflecting, as you were talking earlier, that like a lot of what rises in me in response to those people and their desire for my agreement is um, the, the many times over history that um, queer communities of varying stripes have been sort of almost gaslit, that have been kind of told that your your experience, your witness, all of this 
isn't reliable and therefore we we can discount what you're saying and more than that you can discount what you're feeling and I wondered if there was anything in this kind of like experience you've had that that can kind of speak to that particular pain when it comes to your desire to kind of like speak up and over someone in those moments yeah, I think you're describing exactly that experience of living in the borderlands mm-hmm. where you never feel you completely belong in another community. Um, and there's probably two things I, I've hung on to personally to help me live with that. <coughs> One is that um, the old aphorism, to your own self be true. Um, and, and the other, it sounds a bit... Um, Maudlin, but it goes back to the Stoic philosophers. Um, remember, we're all going to die. And so a lot of this doesn't actually matter all that much. Um, and, and, and as someone who was working as an ordained minister, um, at, at the point where the person who may have had problems with me has somebody they love who's died and you're part of the community farewelling that person uh, again some of these disagreements become a little bit surface um, it, it's reaching beneath the social identities for the human identity um, there's that wonderful speech in Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice um, where Shylock says uh, yeah, as a Jew is saying um, well aren't I a man like mm. all men mm. you know cut me if I and I bleed tickle me and I laugh mm. um, and it's it's a sentiment that was expressed after the um, terrorist attack on the Christchurch mosques here mm. um, we all bleed red so when it really comes to it, uh, the, our human identity is the backstop for me. Mm. Yeah. My, my human identity means that when my loved one dies and that's not recognised or acknowledged or connected with, mm. I've lost out big time. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, the number of us who've... You know, the the faith community might acknowledge that so and so's friend has died, but you know, really hard to say lover or partner. Um, that that lack of recognition and that was acute in a, a period that you know, I lived through where we were losing friends to AIDS. I'd like to think it's a little easier now, but it's um, there's a whole new set of issues emerging for. Um, older gay and lesbian people around aged care and mm. where will we live will we be safe in retirement but will we be recognised you know, will we be welcomed and take the fees like they will from anybody but, um, but will, we be, will we be acknowledged uh, as who we are with our relationships and will toleration be enough and will toleration be enough yeah, yeah. Um, when I was coming up during my university days, uh, Reverend Greg Hewson was very important in my life. You know, you know, 
and he would speak very fondly of you uh, and uh, his understanding of the journey that you went through uh, with the church. And what I got from him was an impression that you were a bit of a firebrand, a bit of a fighter. Perhaps they even saw yourself as sort a of prophet uh, in terms of telling the church uh, some truths that it needed to know. And so, balancing that with the talk you have given today, I'm quite interested to know about your theory of change. Yeah. And how we create change. Um, I never thought of myself as a firebrand or a prophet. Um, you know, bear in mind that when when I first hit this controversy, I I just turned thirty, um, and I, I think in many ways I was quite an immature thirty-year-old. Um, and what was kind of terrifying was, you know, by then I was a sole parent, um, and. The day that one of the church leaders said, look, I don't think you can win this, all I could think was, I don't have an income. I don't have a house. It was all dependent on the church. What am I going to do? How am I going to live? Um, and I found it overwhelming. Um, I, I also went through, for many years, um, particularly in the church, People would suggest that I just wanted to shock people. Now, curiously, no one has ever said that about me since I left the church 20 years ago. So it's more that within the faith community, there are some things you're not supposed to think or talk about. It's a kind of silencing. Um, and diversity of opinion and ideas really wasn't so welcome. So if I said something that wasn't Christian orthodoxy, you know, I, I would get, oh, you don't really think that, you're just trying to shock. Yeah. Well, no, actually, I did think that. Or I was, I was wanting to explore ideas and different ways of seeing things. In terms of a theory of change, um, I... I wrote a book a couple of years ago, um, which is why I was in Germany. It, it, it's on regulating free speech in a digital age, on hate, harm, and the limits of censorship. Mm. And when, uh, when I was working in Germany, people talk there a lot more than they do here about counter-speech. Mm. And I started... I, I, I've got a chapter on counter-speech in the book where I thought... I thought back on my experience in the church and asked what were the strategies that I used that let me survive. And the, the first one was focus on persons, not groups. That, that would be my first theory of change. Mm. That um, the people who got to know me as me and as a father to my little boy and as a musician or whatever they had a different emotional reaction to working with me from people in some Wesleyan Methodist church in Auckland, for example, <laughs> you know, who, who didn't know me or only ever saw me in a really stressed state at a Methodist conference. Um, so, and, and I've heard this so many times. Because um, um, the, the weird thing was that when I left the church and we moved to Wellington... Um, Whereas my sexual identity had been a big thing when I worked in the church, because it was always under 
challenge. Once I was working in the public sector and it wasn't an issue, uh, actually I very rapidly lost interest in my own sexual identity. Um, it just kind of wasn't the thing. And we befriended a couple who lived down on the corner in a house that were very good at um, offering us a drink of wine when we were walking home from the railway station. Um, but then one day the woman admitted to us that we were the first gay couple they'd ever met. And they started inviting their friends around to meet <laughs> gays further up the street. Um, and okay, it settled down. But I also thought there's something actually really significant and nice about this as well. Um, social contact breaks down stereotypes. Um, then uh, there was another um, strategy that I used about um, uh, standing together. Solidarity was incredibly important to me. Uh, the number of times I had to front up at a Methodist conference and my, um, my colleagues in the parish I was in would stand behind me. They, sometimes they'd stand beside me, but it was a kind of shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder solidarity. It wasn't speaking for me. It wasn't acting for me. It was watching my back, and it was just letting me know they were there, but I still had to fight my own battle. You know, that, that was a really powerful strategy. Um, another one was um, reframing. So in the early 1990s, I used to be asked to give public addresses where the, the unspoken invitation was to justify my sexuality in a Christian context. So I would reframe it. There was a, a group in Wellington that asked me to give a public lecture, and so I gave the title um, The Dis-Ease of Heterosexuality. <laughs> and I talked about homophobia and patriarchy. So that, that was a reframing. Um, and then uh, another strategy I've used is uh, reclaiming. And um, a, a lovely example of uh, reclaiming happened a couple of years ago when um, Donald Trump um, famously told the um, white nationalist terrorist movement, the Proud Boys, uh, to um, stand down and stand by. Mm. And, and it was kind of a prelude to what happened at the riot at the Capitol building on um, 6th of January 21. And what gay people started doing was using the hashtag Proud Boys and they would take a photo of two men kissing each other and they would put hashtag Proud Boys, right? And uh, even the Canadian Armed Forces got in on it um, with their you know, official Twitter account. Um, a Canadian soldier had come back from probably Iraq or Afghanistan or something. Afghanistan it would have been. And uh, his husband met him at the airport and uh, kissed him and they, they photographed it and put up the Canadian Armed Forces hashtag but also the Proud Boys one. Or um, a, another lovely example, um, a, a little town in Germany where every year the neo-Nazis used to march there. And so some of the townspeople had had enough of this, so they came up with a really clever playful act of counter-speech. They, um, they raised sponsorship um, so that for every you know, 100 metres that 
these neo-Nazis walked, they were raising money for an exit organisation that helped people leave neo-Nazi movements. And and they had funny posters like um, a, a big table of bananas to give them nutrition and energy for the journey. And then they put a poster up by the table of bananas that said, Mine Munch. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, instead of Mein Kampf, you know. And, or they put up another banner that said, What would the Fuhrer think? Um, and here were these poor neo Nazis, uh, not really knowing where to look, what to say. But what I love about that story is the humour and the playfulness of it. Um, it, it, it wasn't shouting at them. Um, it, it wasn't a counter. It was a kind of counter protest, but it was done with gentleness and with good humour. Um, and they they raised over ten thousand euros. Um, so the the money was then supporting the NGOs that were working to counter this kind of white supremacist white nationalism um, in Germany. So they're kind of my um, strategies. Um, Humour, solidarity, uh, focus on the person, not the group, and uh, reframe. Yeah? I was, I was wondering, interesting, thinking about the generational reflection of this group, and you did make reference to a lot of authoritarianism, and the whole space in which... Um, That's very di- true. A different generation. Yep. I, think that's, I think that's leaving, true. As opposed to leaving you know, some of those organisations that we do and maybe a connection with uh, a metropolitan community church or um, you know, um, embodies the believers who are, all, who are proactively open and affirming. And, and I guess that then brings about a challenge between you know, some of those existing spiritual traditions and the traditions that are that are open and affirming as well, and you know, that whole thing about leaving the church versus being in it or returning to. And, you know. 
this, um, there's a lot of things I don't miss about the church. <laughs> but one of the things I have missed is intergenerational contact. Mm. Because when I was you know, the superintendent minister here at Durham Street, um, I could be on a Sunday with four generations of a family. And uh, I could be with very new, with newborn babies right through to the very frail elderly. And the church, there's something special about the church that it makes that possible uh, because that intergenerational contact is not strong in, in my experience of um, queer communities, for want of a better adjective. Um, and it's very difficult for young queer people to understand the different life journey that um, my generation and older uh, went through or why we uh, don't actually agree with them on some things. Uh, they'll find their own way. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Um, I'd kind of like to add to that conversation. Um, I think... I, I would agree. I'd, I'd, be, I'd be one of those young people that you're talking about who, oh. you know, strives for affirmation rather than tolerance. And I think, first, I just want to say that I think that's a really hopeful thing. And I think that as a community and as a people, you want to progress over time. And I think that the fact that the goalposts have moved is actually a really positive thing. Um, and I also want to say that I really appreciate and am grateful for the work that older queer people have done so that we can be here today. I think that, you know, I, re- I recognize that it's much easier for me than it was for, you know, m- most of the older people or all the older people in this room. And I think that we do likely have difference, differences in views and, and what we accept or what we strive for. And I think, first of all, again, that that's a positive thing and that's a sign of change and evolution. And also just, yeah, that I'm very grateful <coughs> that um, a lot of the work has been done for me to mm. allow me to be here to the end of the show. Mm. And if we can keep those conversations going mm. Um, mm. Yeah, within our queer communities, um, instead of just cancelling one another mm. or switching off or never even talking to one another, uh, I'd regard that as a very hopeful sign. Mm. But there has been the societal change where the privileged position of the of the church and, 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 and Christianity has has, has shifted. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's, I, yeah, it's exactly. a, from, yeah, from an older generational point of view. I mean, I, yeah. I, 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 I'm, that's happened over my lifetime, mm-hmm. and, and, and 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 we're, we're a secular society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Religion doesn't have that privilege yeah. in place, but it did when when I, when I was growing up. Yeah, I came out in 1986, a year of law reform. And I could not have imagined then mm. the societal changes that would happen mm. over the next 30 years of my life mm. and how different it is. Mm. And that also makes me incredibly hopeful. Mm. Um, I, I, don't, I don't believe in some kind of historical determinism that things always get better <laughs> or that there is a... I certainly don't believe there is a right side of history. Mm. Um, I trained as a historian initially, so I know better than that. Um, but I am enormously encouraged by how different and better 
uh, it is for uh, minority sexual identities in New Zealand from what it was in 1986. So that's something to be really great. Not the world. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, well, I'm realising we've gone over time. Oh, we've shifted everything back a little bit. Oh, so okay. So we've we'll okay. we'll we'll <laughs> got room for one more question. Yeah. One thing that I was thinking about when we're talking about tolerance is um, when you're sitting in a space and you're talking about tolerance around sexuality, we're sort of talking about like when you're in a conversation with someone, you can connect on a different level, right? Rather than talking about sexuality, that's what we're talking about in terms of tolerance. But when we're talking within our group, I was mentioning about um, you know transgender identities and things like that, and Tolerance in that space is a whole lot harder because when mm. you're in a situation and you are introducing yourself to someone, you don't necessarily have to tell them your sexuality. Mm. But if I don't want to be misgendered, I do have to tell them my gender identity. And then tolerance isn't so easy in that space because I can't just not mention it. And people mm. won't just not mention, like, to me what their views are after I've told them that. So I think, like, in that space, it's really hard to just hope for tolerance because mm, half the time you don't get it. It's most of the time you don't get it within the faith community. Mm. So then I think we do have to kind of put, push for like affirmation and like that massive shift because it's not just enough to hope that people are just going to... And if they are tolerant, what does that look like? They ignore your identity and just don't bring it up so then they misgender you and come and see you. I mean, that's not tolerance, but that's what yeah. some people might see as tolerance if you treat it the same way as sexuality. It's just a different space. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is to that one, but it was just like. I don't think there is an easy no, answer. But, um, <laughs> because it's actually the tough space that we just live in. Mm. Um, and if I if I think of what got me through, it was having a handful of close friends, mm. um, my gay family, if you like. Mm. Um, yeah, especially through the years when I was alienated from my natural family mm. um, and that isn't the case now but um, f- yeah, knowing who you are finding who you belong with and then trying to sit a bit light on some of the rest yeah. Yeah. so before we wrap this up can I invite you to do one final personal reflection out of all we've thought and talked about in this workshop is there anything you want to take away to help you live well in the borderlands? Just take a moment to think about that for yourself and then 